Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Representative Ilhan Omar has only been in politics for a couple of years, but she's already been on the cover of Time magazine. She popped up for a cameo in a Maroon 5 music video right after the Cardi B solo. She's Muslim. She's Somali. She's the first woman to wear a hijab on the floor of the house, actually. And she's been saying some things out loud, or at least online, that people in Washington usually keep to themselves. A tweet, you know, we talk about tweets a lot here. This weekend, speaking out got her into trouble. She fired off these tweets accusing a lobbying group, APAC, of pushing Congress to punish her because of her stance on Israel. And she tried to be funny while she was doing it. Where she says, it's all about the Benjamin's baby. Uh, and there will be people who look at this and say what she is doing is perpetuating this myth, this notion that Jewish money is somehow controlling things in this country. It's becoming a bit of a pattern. And, you know, one wonders how many times she can get away with saying like, oh, I didn't know this was a stereotype before uh, people wonder why she keeps using them. Josh Keating covers foreign affairs here at Slate, says Representative Omar has been accused of doing this before. Uh, there were tweets where she said Israel had hypnotized the world and accused it of evil doings. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if hypnotized was a uh, notorious B.I.G. reference uh, going with her theme. But anyway, this time around, criticism of Representative Omar has been swift and nearly universal. She apologized after Democratic leaders insisted on it. And President Trump suggested she should resign. Clearly, you know, a lot of the outrage about this was sort of calculated to drive a wedge between Democrats on this issue. For Josh, the interesting thing about these last few days is how a couple of tweets were quickly weaponized by politicians, first on the right, then on the left. This is definitely sort of plays into a strategy the GOP is using to sort of drive uh, a divide in within the Democrats over these questions. The Israeli government used to have the support of just about everyone in Washington. But in the last few years, more and more politicians have started to question this relationship, especially because we give Israel billions of dollars to boost their military. Today on the show, we're going to look at how it happened on Representative Omar's Twitter timeline, reveals years of built-up tension over American foreign policy. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. 
Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Representative Omar is getting a lot of attention for her comments because she's a new representative, also because she's Muslim. But she's not alone. Senator Bernie Sanders' position has been evolving in public for years. Sanders is Jewish, spent time in Israel as a kid. He's found ways to acknowledge growing anti-Semitism around the globe, but also acknowledge Israel's troubling human rights record. Like our own country, the founding of Israel involved the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people already living there, the Palestinian people. The same way Sanders has been pushing Democrats to the left on issues like health care and tax policy, he's been pushing them to rethink foreign policy, too. It's put Democrats in a weird place where you have a kind of, there's a poll in January that showed the share of Democrats sympathizing with Israel more than the Palestinians has fallen from 38% to 27% to 2001. And you have a kind of uh, a lot of support for the Palestinian cause and criticism of Israel, particularly in the kind of left-wing progressive activist space, especially on college campuses. And, you know, I I think that that kind of activist community uh, is important to understand when you see these sort of younger representatives who come out of that. And and I'm not just talking about the two we've been discussing before, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called Israelis opening fire on protesters in Gaza a massacre during her campaign, uh, which sort of got a lot of notice. So, you know, she kind of comes out of that movement as well. And so you have these sort of new voices coming in, and then you have kind of the old guard, this people like Elliot Engel, who chairs the House Foreign Relations Committee. He supported uh, Trump's move on Israel, for instance. Uh, you have people like Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader who leads the AIPAC trip to Israel, co-leads it every year with, or every new class with Kevin McCarthy. You know, you have people like Chuck Schumer and Bob Menendez in the Senate. So there's the kind of old guard leaders of the party still have a very kind of hawkish pro-Israel position. Okay, this political change in the U.S., do you pin it all on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? I mean, his government is fairly conservative. I do. I mean, I, I think that there's there's always been, uh, you know, a, a kind of left-wing activist support for the Palestinian cause that, that goes back decades. I, I think that Netanyahu changed things by sort of openly aligning himself with the Republican Party and his kind of what was seen as kind of open criticism of President Obama. We saw that most explicitly when he gave a speech to Congress uh, opposing President Obama's nuclear deal with Iran. This deal won't be a farewell to arms. It would be a farewell to arms control. And the Middle East would soon be crisscrossed by nuclear tripwires. A region where small skirmishes can trigger big wars would turn into a nuclear tinderbox. Just think of the optics here. Israel's prime minister coming to the United States to criticize a sitting president's foreign policy. But he does it by giving a speech from inside the Capitol. And that speech that Netanyahu gave on the floor of Congress really infuriated a lot of Democrats, including a lot that, you know, traditionally saw themselves as uh, pro-Israel. Then last year, Bernie Sanders called on the secretary of state to increase aid to Palestinians. You know, there was a letter that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders wrote that sort of held Israel partially responsible for the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, which may not 
sound radical, but I but it actually is in sort of mainstream American politics. Even President Obama was always very quick to like first blame Hamas for the situation in Gaza and sort of downplayed the blockade. Uh, and there were 13 Democrats that signed on to that letter, and those included uh, two other senators who are very likely to run or will or are very likely to run for president, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown. And so I, I think you you sort of see this moment where senators who are you know looking for even higher office, who may be considering running for president, uh, whereas in previous years they would be very, very careful to demonstrate their pro-Israel bona fides. I think that it... Uh, that doesn't mean quite the same thing today. And I, I, I think it'll be interesting when you see the sort of APEC conference coming around this year and next year to see who's going to attend. Can you introduce APAC to me a little bit? Because people might not be familiar with what APAC is and what role it plays in Washington. APAC is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. It's the main pro-Israel lobbying group in Washington. Uh, it's extremely influential. Uh, it does not, as Representative Omar suggested in her tweets, actually give money to politicians or their campaigns, but you know, it, it gives a it organizes a major conference every year and it sponsors trips for US politicians, including new members of Congress, to travel to Israel and meet with Israeli leaders. So um, it is sort of one of the more influential groups in Washington. Another group that bears some watching is J Street, which was set up in 2007. They call themselves the pro-Israel, pro-peace lobbying group as sort of an alternative to APAC. They're sort of set up to provide a kind of safe middle ground for Democrats who, you know, want to be pro-Israel. They're not going to, you know, distance themselves that much, but they want to encourage a kind of middle ground where you're allowed to criticize, you know, settlements or the occupation of the West Bank or other policies of the current Israeli government without, you know, being seen as anti-Israel. But just the fact that there is a feeling that we need an alternative to APAC shows you how controversial this group is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it it it's it's always a little dicey because, you know, when <laughs> as Representative Omar learned when you start uh, criticizing uh, APLAC's level of influence, it it opens up these kind of old stereotypes about Jewish influence in Washington. We saw that uh, there was a controversy over uh, the book, The Israel Lobby, uh, by Steve Walt and John Mearsheimer uh, a few years ago, which talked about uh, this lobbying and how it's impacted U.S. policy toward Israel. So I think it's it's safe to say this is, this is an extremely influential group that has played a, a major role in impacting uh, U.S. policy toward Israel. It's funny. I can hear how even like you don't really want to take, <laughs> take it on. Um, yeah, I mean, I I would say that uh, yesterday after this all blow, blew up, I, I did an interview with the president of J Street, which people can read on Slate. Uh, and he was making the case, and I think I agree with him, that the kind of medium, median democratic position on Israel uh, has kind of moved away from APAC, uh, that there is a kind of willingness to, you know, use the word occupation, for instance, or criticize the settlements or criticize, you know, Netanyahu's government, that it's, uh, we don't have the kind of lockstep support for Israel among the democratic rank and file that we did a few years ago. I mean, listening to you kind of try to be very careful about how you talk about this issue makes me realize it's a perfect wedge issue. 
<laughs> for yep. people <laughs> who who want to divide a political party against itself. Yes. And I, I think we saw that uh, Republicans were very quick to call on their Democratic colleagues to denounce Ilan Omar's tweets and distance themselves from her position. So, you know, they, they're they very happy to see the Democrats be having a debate about boycotting Israel um, uh, heading into the primary season. When Josh talks about boycotting Israel, he's talking about something called the BDS movement. It stands for Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions. The idea is to put financial pressure on Israel as a way of encouraging better policies towards Palestinians. Representative Omar is one of just a couple of Congress members to back this idea. Supporters of BDS say it's akin to South African boycotts into ending apartheid. They think about Israel as an occupying state, guilty of human rights abuses. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think that they need to be prepared for this to keep coming back. Uh, This issue is not going away, even if... Most Democrats are, you know, somewhere in the uh, pro-Israel, pro-peace middle. We do have prominent voices on both ends of the spectrum who are who are not going to stop talking about this. Uh, and this debate is only going to continue into the primary. That's, you know, especially going to be the case. You can imagine Bernie Sanders on one end of the spectrum and Joe Biden or maybe Amy Klobuchar on the other uh, sort of arguing on either sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and everybody else in the middle trying to find anything else to talk about, uh, desperately trying to change the subject. Democrats probably don't want to spend the next year or two having an argument about BDS among themselves. It strikes me, though, there are a lot of legitimate criticisms here and legitimate criticisms that you could make about almost any large power, including the United States, where, you know, we kicked people off their land to live here. I guess we is a problematic word there, but (laughs) people who came here from Europe kicked native peoples off their land to live here. But in a case of Israel, how do you keep legitimate criticisms from being read as anti-Semitic when the whole basis of the country is their religion? You know, yesterday, while we saw uh, criticism of Ilan Omar's remarks from Democratic leaders, and I'd say there's definitely room for criticism of uh, how uh, she made her critique and her kind of understanding of how this level of influence works. I think we also saw a lot of, you know, debate about uh, a lot of people sort of raising questions about APEC's influence in Washington and what U.S. policy toward Israel should be. So, you know, my hope would be that uh, we have a real debate over these questions in the primary and going forward and that there there certainly is room for discussion over over the occupation, over settlements, over U.S. policy toward Israel and support for Israel. I don't think we should be afraid to tackle those questions, uh, but you know it it as we as we we've seen over the past week it's it's very hard to do that without disputes becoming very toxic and uh, bring a lot of other historical baggage in Josh thank you thank you so much yeah of course i hope you can do something with that <laughs> we can All right. we can we do All right. okay thanks thanks a lot bye All right that's the show what Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris. The show is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. And if you want bonus content from the show, go ahead and follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Whenever I can't fit something in here, I tend to put it up there. 
Talk to you tomorrow. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.